Good morning, dear intriguer. Here's a headline for you. Sam Bankman Freed's brother planned to buy the island nation of Nauru with FTX funds to build an apocalypse bunker. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Elon Musk's space power and why Bolivia is worrying its neighbors. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Ethan. I had the very, very good fortune to spend uh, the weekend up in my favorite state in the Union, Maine. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good. Oh, that's a great, a great state. Here's a little fun fact, John. If you didn't know this, as a Massachusetts guy, I'm <laughs> compelled to tell you this. Yes, <laughs> that Maine actually used to be part of Massachusetts. What happened? It's a terrible tragedy. I'd rather not get into you, it. You let it go. You let the most beautiful yeah. state in the in the Union go. That's a we mourn terrible. the loss of, of Maine every day. Yeah, understandably. <laughs> well, John, I mean, this is a this is. I'm glad to hear that you're all the way in the far north of the U.S. because it's sort of incredible. We don't appreciate enough that we're able to do this podcast together. I mean, the the internet is an amazing thing. We live about a thousand kilometers away from each other. Usually, I think Maine is probably 800 kilometers mm-hmm. away from, from DC. We have a colleague in uh, Brisbane, Australia that lives 15,000 kilometers away. So our work would be yeah. impossible without the internet. And it's hard to imagine what we would do if, if it ever went down. Yeah, I, absolutely. I marvel at that every day, even with the annoyances of uh, constantly saying, oh, you're on mute or uh, can you hear me? It's still, when it comes out in the wash, is an incredible thing. Um, and I think it's true for, you know, a, a lot of people now, um, just about everywhere. You know, we've, we've, we've talked about undersea cables and, and potential threats against that infrastructure. And I think the fact that we rely on it so much makes those threats much more more real to everybody. Um, you know, you only have to think about how disruptive it would be, for example, if, uh, you know, Taiwan had its undersea cables cut. Um, so I think I think there's a lot of reasons. I think people are, are aware of exactly what you said when you led this when you led this conversation and that's why they're making you know investments in the economic national security those kinds of areas they're investing in in uh making sure the internet stays on all the time right and one of those ventures elon musk's starlink is starting to get a lot of attention and that's what we're that's what we're talking about today yeah it, it sure is i mean we we decided to talk about this because it got a full feature length right up in the in the new york times over the weekend i mean you know, we, we normally cover events, the coups, the protests, the the, the legislation. Um, but I think this story hit both of our curious bones, which, you know, is not at all a saying, but you know what I mean. No. <laughs> um, no. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, so this story in the New York Times, it, it was kind of fascinating. It was... This it was just kind of went behind the scenes into Starlink, and and for folks who who aren't aware what Starlink is, it, it's a company that's operated by who else? Elon Musk, um, and it's operated by uh, SpaceX, his kind of um, aerospace company. Uh, and the idea is that they've built a, a ton of small, low orbital satellites. They've launched a ton of these through SpaceX. Um, you know, about the size of the sofa. These satellites. Um, and, and they provide round-the-clock global internet service as they orbit the Earth. Um, SpaceX started launching these satellites back in 2019, and, and there are currently over 4,500 of them. Um, and, Musk, and I think Musk said he plans to send something like 40,000 up in the coming years. So he's, he's just getting started. I got to tell you, it's, it sounds like an amazing service. Um, the tech blogger Ben Thompson, who I often talk about 
uh, with you, Ethan, one of my favorite bloggers. He, he recently trialed it on a trip to the far Canadian north um, to see if he could work while he was on a camping trip. And he said it worked as well as, you know, many cities, uh, you know, wired fiber optic broadband connections would work. So it's really amazing. And you can kind of think some places in the world are, you know, not just holidays, but they people live in places that are far too remote to connect to these internet cables, and Starlink could really change the game for them. Okay, so then then what's not to like? I mean, this sounds like a complete and and John, if if I may, unqualified success story, even a miracle. Elon Musk is what I would say back to you. <laughs> as with all things, it's never as simple as an unqualified success, right? You know, I think I think he gets. Um, a lot of, well, he gets a lot of media attention um, and he's built incredible things that only he could build. But uh, those things are not without their problems. Let's just say that. Um, and, and, you know, this New York Times article pointed to, to two kind of big problems. The first being a more technical, scientific, astronomical problem. Um, and, that, and that's that having too many satellites in low Earth orbit could obscure the night sky for telescope operators on the ground. And that lots of satellites have a higher risk of collision in, in the low orbit. Um, you know, I think even one collision, they said, can start a chain reaction of collisions that could make it much more difficult to conduct satellite or spaceship launches in the future. Um, and I think some experts even say that space debris could essentially turn the, turn, the, turn the planet into kind of like a prison from which we can never escape, Ethan. <laughs> Jeez, John. That's, that's kind of dark, isn't it? I mean, we're recording this on a Monday. I, 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 I know. Can I l- at least get to Wednesday, Thursday? L- let me get into the week a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, look, I have no idea uh, what I'm talking about on any of this kind of technical stuff. Um, and, and those complaints do feel a little bit kind of, you know, disaster, disastrous, kind of overly critical. But I, but I figured I'd start with the existential danger first, Ethan, so we can get it out of the way um, and talk about international politics, which is um, the other problem that people are saying Starlink has. You know, I, I think I think it's useful to go back to the start of the Ukraine war for this because, um, you know, folks, folks might remember that and we're talking super early on in, in the days of Russia's full-scale invasion, um, a cyber attack took down almost all of Ukraine's internet access. Ukraine's digital minister actually appealed for help from Musk, um, and days later, a bunch of these Starlink terminals, um, which communicate with the satellites that we just talked about, um, they arrived in Ukraine. And, and it was a huge moment in the really early days of the war. Some reports now say that uh, Ukraine's internet is now mostly accessed through Starlink, and, and Ukraine's war effort really wouldn't be possible without um, this service. I think there's just one example was that um, drone operators need it to coordinate the strikes that they're launching um, and that the process of picking targets has fallen from 20 minutes to just one minute, according to this New York Times article um, using Starlink. So it's pretty incredible. Again, John, what's the issue here? I mean, it sounds like a problem for, for Russia, but what's not to like if you're Ukraine or one of Ukraine's backers. Right. Well, it just comes back to, to Elon Musk, the man in charge. Um, <laughs> sorting out Elon Musk's kind of political views is, is not an easy thing to do, and I'm not even going to try to do it here. Um, I think the problem is what consultants might call key man risk, uh, right? Like given Musk's mercurial politics, I'm not sure I'd feel great if I were you know, completely dependent on what Musk and Joe Rogan cook up after passing the bong around on a Friday night, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the, the clearest example of that, to, to sort of not be too flippant, is um, last fall, I think it was, Musk proposed a peace plan. Some folks might remember that. The, the, the peace plan would have required Ukraine to give up you know, large parts of its territory, including Crimea, and lots of people, including President Zelensky, called it pro-Russian. 
Um, and according to the New York Times, and this, and I actually didn't know this, but um, Musk essentially tried to pursue that plan, his plan, his idea for peace, by restricting Ukrainian access to Starlink in areas from which they could launch attacks against Crimea. Um, that's that's a fairly overt uh, sort of intervention in a foreign war. Um, and I, I think you know the the point here isn't whether you agree or not with Musk. It's just that that's clearly too much power in in one person's hands. So what's what's being done about this? I mean, how are governments mitigating the risk of outsourcing all of their internet needs to someone like, or not even someone like, how are they mitigating the risk of outsourcing <laughs> to, all their internet to needs Elon to Musk. Elon Musk? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, well, firstly, I think they're, they're kind of trying to reduce their dependence by purchasing dedicated Starlink satellites for themselves and, and the terminals. Um, the Pentagon purchased apparently four or 500 of those terminals um, and services that they say they'll have complete control over. Um, and elsewhere, you know, in the EU, for example, governments have set aside billions of dollars to build a what they call a sovereign satellite constellation. Um, but it's but it's a big conundrum for policymakers, right? In, in Taiwan, to go back to Taiwan example, for instance, that their internet will almost certainly be taken offline if the Chinese were to invade. Um, and Starlink would, just like it has been in Ukraine, would be a huge help. But Musk has major financial links to China. And if China ever did invade, he, you know, I think he'd come under a lot of pressure to kind of turn off Taiwan's Starlink access. Right. In a way that he hasn't come under pressure from Russia. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly right. And so like the race is really on defined alternatives. Um, and that means that there's a lot of uncertainty about where and when people will be able to access the internet. And clearly Musk has a huge head start in in kind of sticking satellites into space. Yeah. The, the article pointed out that uh, Amazon launched its first two or planned to launch its first two satellites, but those were those launches were canceled because of technical difficulties. Right. So he's got 4,500 in the air already. And plans to, you know, 10X that. So yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think ultimately I was going to say that I think it's just like an, another example of what we've called before on the podcast, the nationalization of tech and, you know, the splintering of the internet. It's, I think governments have woken up to the immense political power that these technologies have um, in people's lives. And they kind of want to control that power. Or if they don't want to control the power, you know, for nefarious reasons, they want to control it so that people like Musk don't. Today's show is sponsored by Roka. We really like newsletters, and we've got another recommendation that you've got to check out, The Current by Roka News. Here's what we like about it. It was founded by people who don't like the negative, partisan, and alarmist style of news. It favors facts over opinions, and it tells you what you need to know for the day so you can hold your own at happy hour. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So, John, mind if I kick it off today? I would love you to. Okay, then I, then I think I just... <laughs> Will. Uh, so I've been watching <laughs> Bolivia rather closely over the past couple of weeks. And, yeah. and John, here's a sample of just some of the headlines I've seen. There was a headline, Russia gains a foothold in Bolivia with nuclear power plant. Headline, Bolivia says <laughs> it is interested in obtaining Iranian drone technology to protect its borders. And headline, Bolivia to use China's yuan uh, for trade in the latest challenge to U.S. dollars. So this is all happening uh, under a president named uh, Luis Arce, a.k.a. Lucho, who comes from Bolivia's Socialist Party and served in the cabinet of uh, famed President Evo Morales, who led uh -huh. Bolivia, you know, I guess as kind of a quintessential 
anti-U.S. Latin American leftist uh, that we've come to know. He and he led Bolivia from 2006 to, to 2019. You know, he railed against American hegemony in the region, brought Bolivia closer to to Russia, Iran, and and China. Well, despite the fact that you've clearly got a career ahead of you in uh, reading headlines in uh, major news <laughs> channels, um, they're not overly surprising headlines, right? No, extra, extra. Here's another one. Uh, they're <laughs> not surprising, but but yeah, here's here's the other one uh, that I saw in recent weeks that shows how much this matters. Headline: Bolivia boosts lithium resources estimate, cementing spot as global leader. And John, headline: another. Bolivia taps China, Russia in bid to unlock huge lithium riches. Uh, you know, we've talked plenty about lithium, how it helps power electric vehicles, solar panels, cell phones, probably Elon Musk's Starlink uh, satellites. Perhaps it, his it, brain, it powers, we don't know. I, honestly, <laughs> worth looking into. Uh, it powers just about everything. So Bolivia will will soon be a major economic player. I mean, not just in the, in the region, but maybe around the world. We saw some of that mm. early growth during Morales' rule. It's since tapered off a bit. But I think with these new lithium discoveries, Bolivia is set for a huge economic revival. And the fact that they're now the third South American country to conduct some trade in the Chinese yuan, mm. and the fact that they're turning to Russia and Iran as economic and, and defense partners will certainly give policymakers in Washington, uh, who are quite averse to foreign actors operating in the Western Hemisphere. I'd say so. It'll give them a good scare. Yeah, yeah. That would be, if I was a policymaker in DC, that would give me a lot of pause for thought. I think I think their lithium reserves are still pretty undeveloped. So there's right. there's time, I guess, for them to get their policy settings right. But it's uh, it's something that, I mean, I hope they're watching. Let's put it that way. Yeah, a lot of potential. Yeah, there's a lot of potential reserves in, in Bolivia that are untapped. The U.S. has other partners in South America as part of this lithium triangle. There's Argentina and Chile, which they're a bit closer to. Uh, but I don't know if you saw this. Chilean President uh, Gabriel Boric said that he was going to fast track uh, uh, Chile's transition to socialism, which, again, not something American policymakers are keen to hear. It's not going to go well down in D.C., no. Yeah. <laughs> What's on your mind, John? Yeah, um, well, you won't be surprised. Ukraine is kind of on my mind pretty much always um, at the moment, and I think it is for many folks in our audience. Um, but there's three key developments that I think that are worth mentioning, uh, and they're all kind of different, and they present different questions um, in, in a way. The first is that I think Ukraine seemed to take responsibility for several drone attacks in Moscow over the past few days. I'm sure folks will have seen the headlines of, um, you know, buildings in Moscow being, you know, light damage, but, you know, decent damage from these drone attacks. And the, the interesting thing is that President Zelensky took responsibility and he went so far as to say that the war is now going to start coming home to Russia, um, which is... Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and he, you know, they've done this before or allegedly they've done this before, but they've never said that... They've never made such an obvious statement of responsibility. And, you know, I wonder... There's a couple of things. I wonder if it means that they're kind of slowly ramping up these kinds of attacks inside Russia in prelude to a missile attack, perhaps, uh, you know, like kind of a, a frog in the boiling pot kind of thing that if you if you do it slowly, then the reaction may not be as harsh. Um, and, you know, we know that Crimea is a huge goal. So maybe that's going to become more of a target for Ukraine 
uh, in the near future. Um, but the second development is that Ukraine seems to have had its first kind of tangible success in the counteroffensive that's been going on this summer. Um, or maybe a better way to phrase it is the first obvious media-friendly success. Um, they, they retook the town of Staromayorsk, and again, that's my best effort at a Ukrainian town pronunciation. Um, but it's near Zaporizhia, which is kind of in that eastern area of, of Ukraine. Um, you know, I think I think the key... The key kind of lesson so far of this counteroffensive is that the Russians are defending very effectively with the time they had to prepare, um, you know, with mines and, and booby traps and, and all this kind of stuff, which means experts say that the Ukrainian counteroffensive requires uh, infantry to advance first to kind of sweep the ground for these these mines before the vehicles come through, which is kind of contributing to the to why it's been so slow uh, over the summer. Um, but I, I wonder if whether this could be the start of some some more breakthroughs. Uh, you know, we've long said that the media was trying to turn this into an all or nothing summer for you for the Ukrainian kind of war effort. Um, and I think the Ukrainians, just as I mentioned, have had a little bit of success pushing back against that narrative that it needs to be quick and decisive. Um, I still think they want a couple of pretty decisive victories if they want to kind of rely on continued US support. Yeah. And what, what was the third thing that you wanted to, to note? Account two. Right. Well, yeah, it follows nicely on from that, actually. Uh, and, you know, we don't do domestic politics here, Ethan, but uh, US politics is global politics, for better or worse. Um, and uh, Donald Trump was active over the weekend holding rallies and interviews. Um, and in an interview to Fox, I mean, who else? Um, Trump, he, he kind of sidestepped a question about whether he would continue to fund Ukraine. Um, but he kind of point, he su suggested that he wouldn't, and he pointed fingers at the EU in classic fashion. I'm going to, I don't like quoting Donald Trump, but I'm going to, cause it's interesting. Um, he said, I'd, I'd get the war settled, but money is number one. I tell Europe, you're about a hundred billion plus short. You got to pay because Europe is smiling all the way to the bank. Europe is doing very little compared to the United States. They should be the same number, if not more. And they get away with murder. Those were his words. And I didn't do bad accent. On, yeah, I was going to say, I'm not going to do an impression because we After won't, hours. You know, yeah, not hemorrhage listeners. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but I think w whether you agree or disagree with, with his point is kind of irrelevant. Um, same as with Musk. It's, it's not really important what, what we all think. It's more important that we understand that it's clear that Europe can't rely on US support beyond January 2025. I, I'm not saying he's going to win. I'm not saying that the US won't support Ukraine, but they shouldn't be relying on it at this point. Um, and, you know, I think that means that they have to kind of grapple with a decision about whether they're going to take over the spending that the US might potentially withdraw or they're going to have to push for an earlier peace in, in Ukraine. Um, but on the other hand, you know, in the Kremlin, Russia hears that and says, well, you know, if we can just keep this war locked down in this kind of stalemate until January 2025 and cross our fingers that Trump gets elected, then everything could change. So I don't, for now, there's no change on that front, but there are some very, very interesting political dynamics playing out for sure. Yeah. And there was a, a there's a, been a, a series of polling in recent days. One came out in the New York Times today that had Trump as the clear front runner, at least in the Republican field. Mm -hmm. So if it comes to a general election, we're going to see two very, vis very different visions of how the war in Ukraine should play out. Exactly. And that's, and that's why Europe needs to be prepared for all of those outcomes, right? Well, thanks, John. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Ethan. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, pop quiz. Can you name the first ever elected female head of state? 
The answer might surprise you, so check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see who it was. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.